All right, good morning. All right, so have any of you noticed how in the last decade or so, superhero films have kind of like taken over that industry? Uh, Growing up, I actually was a comic book fan. I collected the books. I watched the cartoons. The 90s were great for that. I had the action figures, and I watched the movies, whether it was the Batman movie with Michael Keaton or the Spider-Man movies with Tobey Maguire. Were they cheesy? Yes. Did I love them anyways? Yes. But in 2008, Marvel Studios came out with their first movie, Iron Man, and that totally changed the public perception. So that movie was different. It wasn't as cheesy, uh, and it was a huge success. And so all of a sudden, these heroes and these books aren't just for kids or nerds anymore, but they're wildly popular uh, with people of all ages. And so now, over 10 years later, there are these massive genre uh, where we have um, these films, (laughs) right? And, and these shows, and it feels like every couple months there's just something new getting pumped out in this genre of superheroes. And so even if you're not a fan yourselves, the dollars have proven that people love their heroes. But it also raises the question, what makes someone a hero? And it begs the question too, what do you look to be yours? Like what do heroes look like to you? Where or in who would you trust your life? And you know, as more and more of these movies come out, we find that there's like almost a limitless variety of these heroes with different powers and different stories. But one thing they all share in common is the significance of their origin. So each hero's origins are significant because they tell us something about the person behind the mask or in the suit. And so some of their origins also give us the origin of the protagonist. For others, this origin sets up what their greatest challenge will be. Maybe it even reveals their weakness. But regardless, origin stories are important. And so this morning, I want to look at a character who, who's often put into a similar category and called a, a hero, someone endowed with superhuman strength, who accomplishes legendary feats and who's uniquely set apart by God. So this morning I want to look at the character of Samson, and specifically I want to look at his origins and the beginnings of his story. So this morning we're going to look at Judges chapter 13 and 14, and together I hope that we can find what kind of hero he will be, and if he's the kind of hero that we're looking for. And so with that, um, I'll, I'll read again, we'll dive in beginning in chapter 13 verses, uh, we'll just read verse 1. It says, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. All right, so we'll stop here for a moment because here's our setting and here's the backdrop for our hero. Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so God gives them into the hands of their enemies for 40 years. So if you've been with us in the book of Judges so far, there's been this pattern that's been formed and fleshed out of God's people rejecting him and his ways to turn to the ways of the world around them. And those choices always lead them into idolatry and immorality and rebellion. And always God allows the consequences of their choices to come in full. And and so the pattern goes, the people rebel 
are given over to their enemies. They cry out for rescue. God raises up a redeemer or a judge. God empowers them to victory and an age of peace follows. But with each of these cycles of times of rest and peace and prosperity, they conclude because of the people's propensity to go back to what was right in their own eyes. And every time they do that, every time they go back to what was right in their own eyes, we find out that it ends up being evil in the sight of the Lord. And so as as I was writing the sermon this week, I, I stopped here and asked myself, man, why is our definition of good and evil so different from God's? Like, why is it that we can't seem to get this one right? But this is where Samson's story begins. Here with the people in the hands of their enemies because they chose them over God again. And I think here we have to pause to ask ourselves a question as we look at our own stories as individuals but also as a people. Like whose eyes do we use to judge our lives? Whose eyes do we use to judge our lives? In other words, whose judgment do you lean on for what is good and what is right? Whose voice do you listen to when determining how you live and speak? And for Israel during the time of the judges, they saw the lives of the Canaanite people and and determined that their ways were better than God's. And regularly in the book, we will hear that what they judged based upon what was seemed good to them was never good to God. And the consequences often affected an entire generation. And so today, what is the metric for what is right and wrong for you? Is it God's word, his wisdom, and his spirit living, moving, speaking to you? Or is it someone like me who stands on a stage? Or is it some political party or whoever currently represents that platform? Is it some tradition, be it family or community? Who or what defines good and evil for you? Um, And as a note, if it's me, that's bad. Israel, during the time of the judges, chose their own eyes and their own experiences to be their judge, despite God's work and words to his people. And often I fear that the church, we fall prey to the same temptations. It's a challenge each time I prepare to speak And it's scary for me to think that every time I'm up here, I could be misinterpreting a passage or mislead a congregation if what I present comes from my own mind instead of God's spirit. And so I take that responsibility seriously, but if I'm honest, in my day-to-day, I don't think I'm so careful. And it's easy to judge based upon my own experiences. It's easy to reach uh, and react based upon how I feel and, and... I'm hoping that some of you can relate and I'm not alone in that. But listen, I often live by what I see to be right in my own eyes. Yet that regularly gets me in trouble. And I often end up crying out to God for wisdom or for his aid that he would rescue me just like Israel in these times. And he often is faithful, but there might still be some consequences in the meantime. But I'm thankful that we have a God who is faithful to his promises and his people and who answers our prayers. But what's even scarier to me than the times that I do what's right in my own eyes is the times when I'm doing it without even realizing what I've done. And in fact, according to this first verse in our text this morning, some of us can do that 
for 40 years, none the wiser. Could that be you this morning? Could that be us today? So ask yourself, whose eyes are we using to judge ourselves? What or who defines good and evil for you? Because listen, your answer can affect not just the rest of your life, but it can affect a generation, 40 years. But the good news again is that we have a God who is faithful to his promises and his people. And he's a rescuer who uses people, even imperfect people for salvation. And so this morning we read the origins of one of those saviors. So we'll begin again in verse two. There's a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite, to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hands of the Philistines. And again, the woman bore a son and called his name Samson, and the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the spirit of the Lord began to stir in him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtiel. So like many important figures in scripture, Samson's story begins at his birth. But even more specific, even more significant, is that the reality of where his story begins is also how his birth takes place. And so see, throughout scripture, many character stories will begin with the details of their birth. And this is often a sign that this character will be really important. But within the Bible, there's only a select few of very important figures whose births follow a specific pattern. And so that pattern begins with a promised birth of a son to a barren virgin woman by a messenger of God who will be dedicated to the Lord, blessed by God for his purposes. And when careful readers pick up on this pattern, it not only gives the character story a context within the confines of their own narrative, but it also connects them to a greater context in all of scripture from which to view their stories. And so for Samson, the details of his birth places him uniquely in this category alongside those like Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Samuel, John the Baptist, and Jesus himself. And even more, it makes him the fourth, which means he's the center, the one that these, uh, these characters will kind of hinge off of with, with three before and three after. And so here's why I think that matters and it isn't just me kind of nerding out. I think numbers and these patterns are there with purpose. And the Bible uses character types and specific numbers to teach us things outside of the story and the scope of the story that we're reading. And these details exist to point us back to what has come before, but also forward to what's ahead. And I think for Samson, we find that this is exactly what his story here does. And so as we look at his story to follow, we as careful readers will get to pivot back to see and compare to the representatives and the saviors of God's people who have been there before. But also we get to look forward to see if he's the future, if he's the kind of hero we should hope for, or if we'll still be longing for someone else. 
And so another important aspect of these birth narratives is their reminder of the promised son who we're told of all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. So every time scripture brings up a son who's promised or prophesied, the question that we ask is, will this be the one, the capital T, the son of promise? But either way, all these characters in this category, like all of them, Samson's life begins with this immense amount of hope and an expectation for some salvation. Every character in this pattern is prophesied and there's a promise of salvation. Will this be the son of promise? And and right here, I think, is another place where we can stop and we can reflect on our own lives and we can ask ourselves this question. Where do we place our faith? Do we trust in the promises of God or do we seek to fulfill them in other places? What savior do we put our faith in? And so, you know, if you read the rest of this chapter, chapter 13, um, something else that you can see is a contrast between Samson's mother and his dad. Because she hears this message of good news and she chooses to immediately share it with others. And she recognizes that it's from God and she's eager to obey But her husband, on the other hand, seeks to see for himself, and he asks for more. And when he finally believes that this message is true, he doesn't seek to honor God, but he desires explicitly to honor the messenger. You can see that in verse 17. And so again, where is your faith this morning? Is it in the message or the messenger? Is it in the promise or is it in the promise keeper? Like the question we asked ourselves before, it's easy to put our trust in wrong places. But just like walking on thin ice, trust in the wrong places will fail you, no matter how strong the faith. So where is your trust this morning? Is it in the law of God? Is it in the messages of God or rightly in him? Our faith needs to be in God alone, who is the author of the word, the one who sends the messenger, the one who makes and keeps those promises to us. Where is your faith this morning? It's easy to get this wrong. And I've met so many who have misplaced their faith and have been let down by false expectations and have been broken by the consequences. Don't let that be you. So ask yourself seriously this week, where have you placed your hope? Is it in anything other than God alone, Christ alone? Listen, if it is, eventually it will fail you and you will fall and it will hurt. And I'm hoping you don't know what I mean. But I found myself uh, plenty of times in my life right there on the ground wondering what on earth happened and crying out to the Lord. And, and then I realized it's because my faith was in something else. I, I had misplaced my faith and my hope. I'd put it in someone else. I'd put it in myself. Every time that happens, I end up back there. Is your faith in the promise, the messenger, or the author of both? Our faith belongs in God alone, the only one who will never fail. And so that's chapter 13, the prophecy and the birth of this promised Savior uh, and, and all this hope that comes along with these 
promise, uh, this promise of salvation, this one who would bring the salvation. And from here we continue into the adult life of this man who God blessed and moved in and committed himself to. And so we start in chapter 14. It says this, Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as a wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my own eyes. His father and mother did not know that this was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. All right, so listen, we're not off to a good start. Chapter 13 concluded with God blessing Samson as he grew and the Spirit of God moving in him. But the very first thing that we see Samson do is see a daughter of his enemies and determine her to be right in his own eyes. So this woman of Timnah is like the fruit of Eden, explicitly forbidden in complete opposition to the will of God, what he desires and declares to be good for his people to have. Yet Samson determines that it's right for him and that he should take her. And can you guess how this will go? Listen to what God says regarding the Canaanite people of the Philistines back in Deuteronomy 7, chapter 3 through 4, or verse 3 through 4. He says, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they will turn you away. They will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. So listen, this is basically the same warning from the garden. Stay away. Don't take. Not good. Bad consequences. And yet, here Samson is, declaring and determining it to be good in his own sight and taking what he was explicitly told was his enemy. And and right from here, we see how his story is going to go. Samson, this Nazarite, someone who's uniquely dedicated to God for a specific purpose, chooses immediately to turn his back on him. And he consistently and completely disregards the parameters of his vow, as we'll see as we move forward. So instead of staying away from God's enemies, he marries them, which, as a quick note, is the exact opposite of being free from them. And so here's what he does next, verse 5. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came towards him roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hands, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. Okay, pop quiz. What grows in vineyards? grapes all right so what do you do when spending times in vineyards you eat grapes maybe you drink some juice or wine so right off the bat samson breaks his vow he disregards god's command against the philistines and then he breaks his vow hanging out in a vineyard with his family 
And at the same time, a young lion attacks him and the spirit of God rushes upon him and he's able to tear a lion piece to piece with his bare hands. I, I uh, honestly Googled to see if I could find the tensile strength of lion skin this week. Um, interestingly enough, there's not much literature on the subject. Um, I have not torn an animal limb from limb, uh, but I have torn a piece of jerky, which sometimes can take work. So I can only imagine how strong the Lord made him to pull apart this lion. But as easy as it is to get distracted by God giving someone superhuman strength, the significant detail and what we should focus on is actually the fact that immediately after Samson breaks his vow to God, God radically shows up for his end of the bargain. And so here's what I mean. Despite Samson's disobedience, God remained faithful. And even though it's clear that the characters in the story don't even realize that God's presence is there, he works and moves all the same. And so for us this morning, I think we should find comfort in that, that God remains faithful even in the times when we are not. God remains faithful even when we are not. And we can see this again if you look back at a small detail in verse 4 of chapter 14. He says, His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. So in verse 4, we find that although it was explicitly against God's command to give or take a spouse from the Canaanites, God would use this as an opportunity against his enemies, even if those involved had no idea that God was working. And here in verse 6, even though Samson is somewhere he didn't belong, breaking his vow, God is unwilling to forfeit his promise that he made to use this man, and so he works behind the scenes. And so for us this morning, listen, God is at work even when we don't see it. Even in our disobedience and our disregard, God always makes good on his promises. He remains faithful even when we are not. And this is why he's worthy of our worship and our affection because he loves us even when we are unlovable. And he's committed to us even when we fall short. When God makes promises, he keeps them and his promises are good. So again, where are you putting your faith this morning? If it's in anything but God, it's going to fail you. And if you're scared this morning or you're skeptical of putting your faith in God, know this. He will always hold up his end. He will remain faithful even when you are not always. And so as we continue to read through this chapter, we see again and again our hopes of Samson being a hero falling short. In verse 8 through 9, we see him break his vow again by returning to the scene of the epic battle. And he comes to the body of this lion. And, and in that lion, there's this nest that bees had made with honey. And instead of finding that dead lion and the honey within dirty or disgusting, he reaches in and he scoops it out to eat it while he travels. It's kind of gross to me. And then he comes home to his mother and father. And like Eve with the fruit from the forbidden tree, he gives to them this unclean food so that they would eat, becoming unclean as well. And so here, the hero in the story doesn't even think to protect his own family, but instead he gives them which defile, like that which defiles them. 
And so what kind of hero, what kind of savior is that? In verse 10 through 19, we begin to see the consequences of Samson's total disregard for what God had said and how poorly his eyes have served him as the judge of what's good and what's evil. As Samson celebrates, he's at this wedding feast with his new Philistine family, and he asks them what I think is a terrible riddle, and he makes a bet that they can't solve it within the week. And in this story, the wickedness of that new family is revealed as they threaten their own family, Samson's new wife, if she doesn't find out the answer for them. And in her fear, she betrays her new husband. And so then in Samson's rage, he kills 30 men in a Philistine town and steals their spoils to pay off the debt that his bet cost him. And in his anger, he leaves his new wife and he goes back to his father's house. And then finally in verse 20, the chapter ends with the clear moral confusion of everything that's going on devolving even further as his wife is given to someone else who also happened to be his best man. And so this is Samson's origin. From his birth, Samson is set up to be this epic hero for his people. God committed himself to Samson before he was even conceived and promised to be with him and blessed him and moved in him and even gave him supernatural strength to be the savior for his people. But instead of trusting in God and following after what God said was good, Samson puts his faith in himself and sought after the things that looked good to him. And listen, it never worked out well. Despite God's clear purposes for his life, Samson thought he knew better and determined to follow his own selfish path. That path led him to places he should have never been and to a family he should have never tied himself to. And ultimately, this path led him to suffering instead of success. Samson's eyes failed him time and time again. His faith in his definition of good and evil only took him to places of pain, and his response was to inflict that pain on others. Yet despite Samson's failures and flaws, God remained faithful to him. Why? Because God's faithfulness was not dependent on Samson's character, but on his own. Samson was never the hero nor the savior. God was. And so within the book of Judges, Samson serves as this culmination of generations of people turning from what God said was good to what they thought was better and it never goes well. And in Samson we find that it's, it's not, um, that he's not the hero that these people needed, but he certainly was the one they deserved. And then Samson's origin places him in that category with other heroes of the faith, but he uniquely stands out as this example in the center of what happens when our saviors turn out to be selfish. And so today, who do you turn to and trust when things get tough? Where is your faith? What do your heroes look like? Whose eyes do you use to judge what's good and what's evil? What or who defines that for you? And where is your faith this morning in some promise, in some specific messenger, some selfish poor man's version of a hero, yourself, or is it the God who remains faithful and who always makes good on his promises even when we do not, even when we fail to see he's working? 
Samson's origin shows us that our eyes and what we see as good can often lead us to unforeseen suffering and reminds us that often hurting people hurt people. His story shows us that we need a better savior than Samson could ever be. And for us today, we have the gift to know that his name is Jesus. On our list of these seven prophesied and promised sons, Jesus is the last because there's none needed after. Despite the similarities in their origin, Jesus chooses to follow the path that God the Father had set before him and selflessly lays down his life to save the lives even of his enemies. Jesus was a selfless savior where Samson was not. and Because of that, he offers freedom, not just from a wicked people, but freedom for all people and from our greatest enemy, sin, if we put our faith in him. So this morning, who defines what's good for you? Who or what places, uh, who or what have you placed your faith in? Faith in the wrong places will always fail, but God will remain faithful even when we do not. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for stories like Samson's. Uh, Lord, I pray this morning that we would be humble um, in reading his story, that we wouldn't um, aspire to be like Samson despite his strength, but that we would recognize um, that he's everything that you are not, that he's selfish when you're selfless, that his de definition of good and evil um, fails and leads to destruction. Lord, I pray that we'd recognize that oftentimes we are Samson who put our faith in ourselves, not recognizing that you've been working in our lives all along and that our faith belongs in you. Lord, we make terrible heroes. Lord, the heroes of this word all have immense flaws. I pray this morning that all of us here in this room or listening from home would recognize that you are the true and perfect Savior, that none is needed after you. We ask these things in your name. Amen.